from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. In just a moment, we'll be joined by State House reporters for a recap of the week's events. But first, the day after announcing it in his State of the State address, Governor Jim Justice issued an executive order creating a state-level narcotics intelligence unit. The group is charged with gathering intelligence on drug crimes through forensic accounting and computer data analysis. Emily Allen reports. This is the West Virginia Intelligence Fusion Center. It's supposed to investigate criminal and terrorist activity happening in our state under the Department of Military Affairs and Public Safety, or DMAPS. We're the central hub for, for any public safety law enforcement uh, intelligence gathering and dissemination. So we would gather information for any public safety or law enforcement situation and then get that information to the to the people who need it. Last Thursday, the governor issued an executive order calling on DMAPS to create a narcotics intelligence task force unit within the fusion center. Director Lucart says the task force would share information and resources with local law enforcement, especially in rural areas, which can't afford to hire their own forensic accountants or computer specialists. He used to work on narcotics investigations for Putnam County. Coming from my background as a law enforcement officer and specifically in uh, drug investigations and in narcotics investigations, the, the intel side of an investigation takes that case to a completely another level. It provides the, the investigators with information and intelligence that they otherwise would not have. Uh, it helps to identify targets. It helps to identify associates. It helps to identify assets, uh, things that, that can take these cases to another level. DMAPS Secretary Jeff Sandy says the task force also will collaborate with forces in other states and the federal government to detect drug crimes involving West Virginia that have actually originated somewhere else. If we can work with them and stop the drugs in Ohio and Michigan, for example, we have done a service to West Virginia citizens. Ohio actually created a narcotics intelligence task force unit last year, also by a governor's executive order. However, Ohio leaders budgeted more than $3.4 million to the creation of its center. West Virginia Governor Justice is requesting $1.9 million in a year when he promised lawmakers a more conservative budget. Secretary Sandy says this would be enough to hire about 15 forensic accountant computer specialists. He thinks it's worth the money. As a former federal agent and as a West Virginia sheriff in Wood County, if I would have had this available to me, it would have been such an asset. 
If the West Virginia legislature budgets $1.9 million toward creating this task force, Sandy says his agency can have 15 people hired and working for it by July. For the legislature today, I'm Emily Allen. Join us now our State House reporters, Brad McElhaney of West Virginia Metro News, Taylor Stuck of the Huntington Herald Dispatch, and Stephen Allen Adams of Ogden Newspapers. Welcome, all of you. Good to see you. There's actually a lot to talk about um, this week. Brad, I'm going to begin with you. President Trump this week has signed an economic deal with China, phase one. And according to Governor Justice, this holds great potential for metallurgical coal uh, from West Virginia. Yeah, so there's always a West Virginia connection, right? And uh, Pre President Trump and Governor Justice are buddies, as mm -hmm. Governor Justice will be quick to tell you. So when this deal was announced uh, just a day or so later, Governor Justice was filing his own reelection papers, but also filing on behalf of President Trump in West Virginia. And in the course of that, uh, Governor Justice brought up this trade deal to say that he had received a phone call from the president and the president gave him a very special duty, which is to, I took it to mean, provide outreach to Chinese officials uh, about the possibilities with metallurgical coal, particularly the coal in West Virginia. Uh, that's about all we know right now. That deal is pretty preliminary. It's a $200 billion deal for American products. The energy aspects of it, which include not only coal, but liquefied natural gas, are a sliver of the overall deal. And then within that, coal is a sliver of the energy aspect. Still, given the recent downturn of coal markets in West Virginia, any good news is good news. Real good news uh, uh, could be significant. Now, through your reporting, West Virginia Metro News, you spoke to uh, the West Virginia Coal Association, uh, Chris, Chris Hamilton, about that. Um, what, what was his reaction? Yeah, Hamilton was at Justice's filing for office, and so when, when the governor was done explaining, we turned to Hamilton to say, what do you know about this? And he is still gathering details, had learned a bit from the National Mining Association, again thinks that the deal has potential for metallurgical coal, uh, and agrees that any, any development is cause for optimism. And, and again, in your reporting, you're saying that the, uh, the governor was going to reach out to coal operators across the state and have some kind of powwow and figure out where to go from here. Right, so you know the governor uh, wears many hats and one of them is coal operator. Uh, he and his company have holdings in southern West Virginia. Uh, a lot of that is metallurgical and he said he knows all about it. Uh, told the president that, you can trust me, sir. Uh, so he says he intends to reach out. We, we don't know a lot more about how that might go, uh, but he has guaranteed the president that he's ready, willing, and able to provide outreach to Chinese investors. All right, um, Stephen, turning to the pre-existing conditions legislation that the Republicans have, have put forward, Senate Bill 284. Earlier, now, um, you know, that was announced, that legislation was announced at the beginning of session by Attorney General Patrick Morrissey in a, in a, uh, in a press conference. Um, the Attorney General is, is part of a, a suit by many attorneys generals that are trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. And of course, that's the law of the land that instituted that protection to begin with. Um, we have a piece of tape from the uh, Attorney General's 
budget presentation in the Senate Finance Committee earlier this week, and uh, Democratic senators took the opportunity to, to drill him on the need for the legislation and his involvement in the dismantling of the ACA. This exchange is between, of course, the Attorney General and Minority Whip uh, Corey Palumbo. We'll take a listen. We can do better than Obamacare. Um, and I do recognize that there are pieces that are important and popular. That's why I support covering individuals with pre-existing conditions. Uh, Senator, I would encourage you to Which take your lawsuit would potentially eliminate as well. My, my goal has always been to make sure that doesn't happen. And proof of that is that, one, number one, it hasn't happened to date. Number two, we've always said that there are ways to address that. We don't know what will happen within the lawsuit now, what's going to get severed and what won't. But West Virginia can step up and do a great service to the people of our state by putting a structure in place so that if that provision of Obamacare gets struck, we're ready, we can act, and then we can tailor solutions that work very well for our state and then take advantage of, undoubtedly, the federal debate that's going to occur. Well, I hope that you're correct that if it gets struck down, a better system can be developed and implemented. I, I, I don't share your optimism that that would happen. Uh, Stephen, pick, uh, pick up the, the, the backstory on that, uh, the issue in general, and that legislation before session. Well, sure. As you mentioned, uh, Patrick Morrissey, the attorney general, is one of 18 state attorneys general that filed suit against the ACA. That's currently winding its way through the federal court system as we speak. Uh, it was ruled partially unconstitutional by the New Orleans Appeals Court. It's been put back down in the Texas U.S. District Court. And it's kind of up to them to figure out, do we get rid of the whole thing? Do we parse it out? Do we try to divide it up in some way. So that's where that stands right now. It's likely at some point to end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. So in light of that, now we have moved on to this piece of legislation, the Healthcare Continuity Act. It was introduced last week uh, by Senate President Mitch Carmichael. He's one of the sponsors on it. And you're looking at a situation now where, like he said, he wants to protect people with pre-existing conditions uh, from rising healthcare premiums and things of that nature. The problem is you got Democrats on the House and Republican side, now U.S. Senator Joe Manchin. They've come out very much against it because they see it actually causing premiums to increase when you put some of those people into pre-existing conditions in a high-risk pool. And that's, excuse me if I can interject, that's what the Republican uh, bill does. And I say Republican bill because there is going to be a, 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 a bill by the, the Democrats are going to uh, introduce a bill if they haven't already done so. But I understand in the Republican bill, 284, everyone with a high risk is put into one pool. And, and according to the legislation, their premiums can raise no more than five times that of the uh, of, of the premium of the the other pool, um, and and so therein, yes, you can. It'll be protected, but can't. Is it affordable in the end? Well, that's exactly it. One of the issues that's been brought up is the fact that obviously in West Virginia, we've got the statistic is 800,000 people with pre-existing conditions. Many of them are on Medicaid. That is about a $1 billion uh, subsidy from the federal government to help with West Virginia's Medicaid expansion that was done several years ago. If this is overturned in some way or some form, is that going to put a hole in the state budget? 
is it going to make the state liable for having to protect those people and how much money is that going to cost? Obviously, we're looking at a situation with our state budget this year. We've got extra money in that line item that's being used to get rid of the waiver program, well, not get rid of the waiver program, but get rid of the wait for the waiver program and put more money into CPS and things of that nature. If this happens to, to go through and it's overturned and that puts a hole in our budget because of how we're doing this, it could hurt those programs substantially. And that's one of the reasons U.S. Senator Joe Manchin has weighed in on it. They had conference calls uh, on Wednesday battling back and forth on this uh, very issue. Almost like a relitigation of the 2018 U.S. Senate race in a way. And so uh, we're just going to be uh, hearing a lot more uh, about that. That battle has, has only just begun. Um, family Resource Networks were recognized today at the Capitol. And uh, these are agencies that are, are located on the county level. They're in charge of helping families with these wraparound services that we've heard um, both parties say are just absolutely critical right now in, in, in battling so many of the, um, so many of our challenges. Um, Senator Ron Stallings, now a Democrat in the gubernatorial primary race, made some remarks about the, the need uh, and, and all that they do. Let's take a listen to that first. But uh, everything from uh, feeding programs, uh, addiction prevention, kinship navigators, uh, training grandparents, grandfamilies, uh, they deal with everything from providing clothes and hygiene uh, products. They do all kinds of in-home services. Things that we've been talking about that we know are needed. These wraparound services, if you will. So I think we need to really look at, look at uh, this. It's, it's a line item in children and families, and we do have the power of the purse. That's what we do. That's, the, that's what we do here in the legislature. I think we need to look at this and when the DHHR is trying to roll out all of these social programs, they have to understand that there's already infrastructure in place that I know they're going to be needed. Now, Taylor, so many of these services that the uh, Family Resource Networks provide are addressing issues that are also faced by families and, and especially children within our foster care system. And I know that that uh, is an area that you've been following very closely. There's a reform bill that's making its way through uh, the committee process. Tell us, tell us about the bill, what it, ad it addresses. Uh, so this is one of, there are actually a, a couple of bills relating to foster care. There's one that's going to increase CPS salaries and to create more CPS caseworker positions and some other things, but this big one. And is, that's Child Protective Services. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so, the, but the, the big one that they worked on this week was, um, it really builds on the bill that they passed last year, um, House Bill 2010, which really was the first in years since they had kind of addressed CPS in such a really big manner in the foster care system. Um, so this really builds on that and the, what they did last year and continues to do more things. One thing, a couple of things of note that they added into the bill this week, the House Health Committee um, that I think are important is guardian ad litems, which are the court-appointed representation for children in child abuse and neglect cases. This is the person that is basically the voice of the child. They go and they meet the child, talk to, talk to them, figure out what they're going through and what's going to be in the best interest of them, and they report back to the judge who, finally make, who makes the final decision. 
Well, in a foster care survey of foster parents, there were more than a th about a thousand families um, responded to it. Majority of them said guardian ad litems were not meeting with children. They weren't meeting with the families. Um, so there's a provision in that bill that would make the guardian ad litems have a signature from the foster family saying that they did come, they came to my house, they met with the child that I'm caring for, and then they have to turn in that report and the family gets a copy of that report. So it's trying to build in some more accountability for that, which is such a vital role. It's the voice of these children. And the, and the, um, the parents of these children, the foster parents of these children, that was a big thing last year. Last year, the bill, of course, um, established the managed care um, process and we finally have that uh, uh, managed care organization on but that was the big thing that um, we, we passed this huge bill but it wasn't addressing uh, what what foster parents felt that they needed and you're saying that some of these things are, are making their way into this like the guardian and ad litem. Oh yeah, there, I would say that there's definitely a lot more input from families. I think this bill really addresses more along those lines of things that those foster families were saying, this is why people don't foster, this is why people stop fostering. Um, so I think there's been a lot more and in taken into account. This bill also creates a foster parent and kinship parent um, bill of rights. So it spells out the rights that they have and it will be investigated by the new foster care ombudsman, which was created in the last bill. And then it would be enforced by the Attorney General. So even those rights of just, you have the right to intervene on behalf of the child that you're, you're caring for in court. You have the right to be notified if they're gonna be removed from your home. It also creates a, a bill of rights for foster children as well. So they have, you know, they have the right to privacy. They have the right to still speak with their siblings if they've been separated. Um, so I think it, this bill really does build in a lot more, takes into more in account what those foster families were saying. And I think they felt not heard last session. Uh, you know, we, we heard um, we heard the the deputy uh, DHHR secretary uh, speak uh, in in interims um, uh, about this situation, and uh, he talks about uh, uh, you know runaways. Is there any update on you know what the accurate numbers for for runaways are, and and how they might be addressing that? Yeah, part of the problem is just the definitions that DHHR uses to what is a runaway. So for I think for a runaway, we think that that child is gone forever, that you're gone far, but there can also just be away from supervision, which is just they could be on the other side of the room and trying to get away from just get some space, but they're technically away. So it kind of inflated that number a little bit, but there still are a lot of children that are gone. There are children that age out of the system before they're found. Um, so the House um, Children and Families Committee this week, they did, they created an originating bill to kind of address all of that. Um, I don't really have too much of the specifics about it because it was originating, so I didn't have a hard copy in my hands yet, um, but there is something to, to address all of that. It kind of, you know, amended those definitions. So state police, CPS are all on the same page when we're dealing with children who are missing. Okay, care. super. We're going to continue to follow that. Thanks, Taylor. Um, Brad and Stephen, both of you covered uh, this week arguments before the West Virginia Supreme Court over the Right to Work bill, which was passed out of the West Virginia legislature, what, now four years ago or yeah, something flashback. like that? Yeah, Senate Bill 1 of 2016. <laughs> uh, tell us about those proceedings, Brad. Well, you know, first of all, just the setting was was 
interesting, the Supreme Court, the tradition, the ornate mm. uh, atmosphere there, but also the fact that we are talking about 2016 legislation that has kicked around West Virginia's court system back and forth ever since. You know, when you cover these, um, there's a long track record of filings. Uh, the, the filings for each side somewhat speak to themselves, so what you get is this uh, back and forth questioning among the justices. And you can tell a little bit what's on their mind, although I would caution anyone covering these, they could sometimes play devil's advocate. So you, just because they're asking something doesn't mean that that truly reflects what they believe. Uh, but, but right to work is such a, a political hot button issue in West Virginia, I was certainly very attuned to the kinds of questions the justices were asking. Uh, some had to do with uh, trying to refine the question here, which was not right to work as a whole, but the unions in West Virginia are making the argument that if you are in a workplace and you ought not to be in the union, uh, should you continue to pay fees for the union's representation on issues like contract negotiations? And the unions are saying that if you don't, that means that you are a free rider and it's unfair to them uh, potentially endangering the union itself. Uh, so Justice Margaret Workman, a longtime justice, asked questions about that. Uh, justice Beth Walker, who last year was the chief justice, uh, asked some questions about, look, we, we reversed an injunction a couple of years ago, uh, and at the time, justices said, this case had, has little chance of succeeding on the merits. She said, what has changed in the last couple of years? Uh, and then the current Chief Justice, Tim Armstead, wasn't there at all because, as you'll recall, he was the House Speaker at the time this bill mm. initially passed. So he recused himself and was behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. uh, but very interesting just to hear uh, what the justices were asking and try to glean from that where this may head. And, and, and Stephen, yes, where does this head, or where is it now? Well, that's a good question. I had the opportunity to talk to Josh Sword, the president of the AFL-CIO, and obviously they're very confident in the arguments that they had made, like Brad talked about. They're talking about this being a takings issue, freeloaders uh, benefiting from union representation while not paying into that system. They're very confident that their argument, uh, the very same arguments they made in front of uh, Canal County Circuit Court Judge Jennifer Bailey have merit. However, they are also preparing for the possibility that they are ruled against. And it sounds like this isn't going to go much further than the state Supreme Court. Uh, Josh Sword told me that their goal, if this happens to be overturned, that, that well, not overturned, but their arguments are kind of ruled against, that they're going to focus on the 2020 elections. Now, over the last two election cycles, the unions have poured a lot of money into those mm -hmm. elections and have tried to, their best to kind of take out various members of the Republican legislative leadership. They went after Senate President Mitch Carmichael in 2016, and that didn't work out. So, But they're going to definitely try to do that again in some form or fashion to try to get some people in representation and that could possibly reverse this law and repeal it. All right. Now, Taylor, I wanted to get to you. Um, a bill designed to help um, people with disabilities uh, be able to vote passed this week, one of the earliest bills out of the Senate. Um, I know that you've got a story coming up. Can you preview that? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, 
it's the same technology that Mac Warner unveiled for military voters overseas. Um, they are it's at the it's absentee. a phone app. Yeah, it's a it's a mobile app. So it's if you're it's, it's the absentee ballot, and you get to they all got to vote on their cell phones, and it was a lot easier for them. So this was um, advocate disability rights advocates um, thought, hey, this could be a really great opportunity for for people with disabilities who don't have the ability to vote in private, which is the right that everyone else should get to afford. The ADA, the Americans with Disability Acts, requires this. And so this is going to bring us in line with the ADA um, Act. And then it's going to allow, if you're a disability rights advocate, the example he gave me was if you're blind, you don't get to vote in private. You have somebody, even if it's your wife who fills out the f ballot for you, still aren't getting to vote in private. So this will give the ability for you to, to know that you have the right to vote and it'll make it easier for people who can't, can't get to the polls and even more people will get to vote. All right. We'll be uh, looking forward to, to reading that in the Herald-Dispatch. Just a moment left in time now. Um, Steve, you've been doing some uh, reporting on the, uh, the Fairness Act. Very quickly, uh, bring us up to date on that. Sure. Well, obviously, that has been introduced in the state Senate. It's got bipartisan uh, sponsorship on both sides, two Republicans and two Democrat senators. You're talking about a bill that hasn't made it to a committee agenda yet and may not. Uh, Senate President Mitch Carmichael has kind of tried to walk a tightrope on this, trying to please obviously people in the LGBT community because he does believe that uh, sexual orientation and gender identification should be on our uh, employment and housing non-discrimination acts. But he also is trying to please religious leaders, particularly in his district, that are a little bit more conservative and think this is going to cause some issues with, with their churches and how they do things. Now, it also sounds to me talking to State Senator Ryan Weld uh, just yesterday, actually, for the State of the State podcast, where Ryan Weld says that they're actually waiting on some issues uh, with the U.S. Supreme Court that might actually decide this for them. All right, terrific. We'll have to, to leave it there, and we hope you'll all join us back again. Brad McElhaney of West Virginia Metro News, Taylor Stuck of the Huntington Herald-Dispatch, and Stephen Allen Adams of Ogden Newspapers. Thank you all for joining me tonight. Monday on the legislature today, ceremonies honoring Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and of course, coverage of news and events here at the Capitol. I'm Suzanne Higgins from everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thanks for joining us and have a great weekend.